Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Boat Trader is America's largest boating marketplace with over 100,000 boats to choose from. We offer simple, comprehensive solutions for those looking to sell, find, and finance new or used boats. Visit BoatTrader.com to get started. Hey, everybody. Thanks for joining us for yet another episode of the Super Retriever Series Behind the Line podcast. I'm your host, David Hamilton. And today for episode four, we have a great guest I'm really excited to talk to. And hopefully all of you are excited to learn more about Lee Howard. Lee, how are you doing today? I'm doing wonderful. Absolutely wonderful. Well, we are so glad to have you here. I think uh, most everybody that follows the Super Retriever series is, is pretty familiar with you, but uh, let's get started. Um, I know that uh, you've been in this game for a while now. Um, you're not a newcomer. Uh, you're a professional trainer for a living, but let's take it back to your childhood. What was Lee Howard the youngster like? I mean, did you did you play sports? Did you have a dog? Did you go hunting? What was that like? Uh, Lee, yeah, Lee Howard the youngster was a, uh, was a baseball and basketball and football everything that's all i did um was sports two older brothers that played sports so from the time i was walking um that's what i did and i was i hunted some later in my adolescence like i guess early teenage years when i started doing some hunting um but the the beginning of life was all about sports were you a good athlete i was a decent athlete yeah i was uh good in my eyes and maybe a couple other eyes but everybody else i was probably mediocre <laughs> did you have any pet dogs as a kid? I did. Um, we had beagles growing up. I say we. Um, my brothers uh, had beagles growing up. So I, I did a little rabbit hunting uh, with my brothers and neighbors um, and stuff. But uh, retriever-wise, no. Um, never owned a retriever until later in life. But I did have pets growing up and, and dogs growing up, beagles primarily. Because you were the younger sibling, did that really help you as you got older and nowadays to be more competitive? Because I can imagine I'm also the, the youngest one. And I know growing up, at least in my household, the youngest one always had to fight for everything they got. So did that make you more competitive <laughs> now as an adult? You know, I don't know that it didn't hurt me, uh, actually, because my my brothers are a, a good bit older than me, uh, 11 years and nine years older than me. So um, they actually probably helped me more than they hurt me. Um so uh, they, they they did a lot for me that probably a bunch of, uh, if we'd been closer in age, they wouldn't have done for me. But as far as a competitor and as far as uh, developing as an athlete and developing as a, as a person, um, it helped me tremendously. Um, I was always around the big kids. Um, so my development as an athlete, as a baseball player and stuff like that, was probably ahead of the game um, when I was a young age because – I did play with them. They were much bigger, much older. Um, so from that aspect of it, yeah, it did help me out tremendously. Now, like I said, they they did give me things and, and uh, help me out in ways that if we'd have been closer age probably wouldn't have happened, but they did help me out tremendously, yeah. That's awesome. Um, so. so when did you first get interested in retriever trials and hunt tests and that sort of thing? The retriever trials and the hunt test game didn't come till I mean, I was – in my early twenties. Um, like I said, I didn't have any retrievers growing up. Wasn't a huge hunter growing up. My father, 
um, is an absolutely amazing man. Uh, one thing that makes him such an amazing man is his work ethic. And uh, he works hard still to this day at 72 years old. He's one of the hardest working men I know, but he did it for fun. He was a career UPS driver. And when he wasn't driving a UPS truck, we were bailing hay. Um, and that was fun for him. So he wasn't a hunter. He didn't fish, anything like that. He was a worker. And uh, so I got to grow up in a working family, not so much a hunting family. But um, in high school and in college, I got into hunting. So that's when I my desire to have a dog come at that point in time in my life, uh, probably in high school. Um, didn't get one until after I graduated college. Um, so my recollection of or my knowledge about retrievers, period, um, at all, didn't really start until after I graduated college and was in my early 20s. What'd you major in in college and what'd you think you were going to do for a living? <laughs> um, I have a bachelor's degree in biology and a minor in chemistry. Um, I was had all intentions of going to grad school and becoming a wildlife conservation biologist. Um, I didn't pursue that simply because uh, I, I didn't, didn't want to go to school anymore. I was tired of school. I felt like I'd been in school my entire life, which I had been, and I just didn't want to go to school anymore. So I ventured away from the sciences at that point I graduated from college. Hey, man, no slide on you there. I'll go ahead and say right now to everybody listening at home, the smarter person on this end of the conversation is on the other end of this line because when you biology and chemistry, yeah, man, that's uh, oh, well. <laughs> some tough subject matter there. It was, but I enjoyed it. So you said in high school you started to have the desire to, to maybe get a dog, maybe possibly start looking into doing some retriever trials or hunt tests and then didn't really happen until you were in your 20s. So, you know, how'd that happen? How'd you end up getting a dog and, and start training them? And what was that dog's name? And what was that relationship like and that experience like for you? Yeah, well, like I said, you know, in high school and college, I started hunting, started shooting a lot. Dove, duck um, was the primary things that I shot um, and hunted. And um, when I got out of college, my best friend from back home, he was still home. He had uh, working and training dogs with Brad Arrington. And, um, Brad was training dogs. When I graduated college, he had already started training dogs. Um, and in my spare time, I would go hang out with him, of course. And then uh, seeing him train the dogs and seeing what a dog could do and what a trained dog looked like, you know, I had to have one. Absolutely had to have one. But I was a poor college, you know, college graduate, just out of college, didn't have anything to my name, uh, couldn't afford the dog. So I told Brad, I said, I want to buy a puppy. Help me find a puppy. And I'll throw birds for you. I'll clean out kennels. I'll whatever I can do to help you if you'll train the dog for me. So that's how it all got started. He found me a puppy, um, a little a black male named Rowan. And uh, I took Rowan uh, home with me. He showed me what to do with him as a puppy, played with him. When it got time to train, um, I gave him to Brad and uh, I would go out almost on a daily basis and throw birds for Brad and help Brad feed up and wash trailers and clean kennels and just whatever I could do to help Brad out and for him to train that dog for me. So <clears throat> that's how uh, Rowan was my first dog. And um, I did not, I had a hand in the training with Rowan, but it was a very small hand. Um, when Rowan got a little more advanced in the training, um, Brad started showing me how to train the dogs. You know, he started showing me how to do the obedience, how to, he started, showed me how to force fetch. And so instead of just throwing birds for him to pay for Rowan, I was 
doing some leash work with dogs and then I was collar conditioning and that's how I got started training dogs was simply paying for my dog to get trained um by helping Brad out so I was fortunate enough that I was able to put a senior title on Rowan myself Brad um had me I guess handling good enough that I could pass a senior test and uh when Rowan got ready for it I run him in senior and and got a senior title on him and then Brad finished out his master title so um but that was my start I mean I I started training dogs to pay for a dog to be trained. So what was that experience like training, tra- you know, like you said, you, you assisted in training row and you, you kind of played the secondary role, not the primary, but you, but you did get some titling for him. So I did. That obviously had to be exciting for you, right? Oh, super exciting. And I have, I have the worst nerves. I mean, my entire life, anything I have to do in front of people, um, whether it was speak, you know, singing the choir at church, Whatever it might have been, my nerves are horrible. I mean, I get shaky, I get nauseous, I get you know just sick. So I can remember running that first uh, first junior test with Rowan, and uh, getting out of the truck at the test. And Brad had had some. He had Brad was running some senior dogs and some master dogs, and he had Rowan on the truck with him running junior. And uh, we put it there to run junior. And uh, Brad told me, "Go get get Rowan out. I'm going to go get you on the list and uh, get him ready, though." So Brad walks off, and uh, I got out, and I stood there at the trailer looking at Rowan's door, and I went to open it, and I closed it back, and I walked around for a second, and I went back to it, and I went to open it again, and I closed it back, and I walked around a second, and by that time, Brad was walking back, he's like, hey, you're up in three dogs, you know, get him out of the truck, he said, no, he needs to be aired good, you, need, you should have already had him out, and I was like, and I don't know if I can do it, Brad was like, what do you mean, I was like, I think I'm about to throw up. <laughs> and uh brad you know brad starts laughing at me he's like well that's good that's that good that means it means something to you get him out of the truck and walk him around if you throw up don't worry about it <laughs> so i got him out i didn't throw up but i got him out and, and run him and everything went well but uh that's uh that's my first recollection of a hunt test and to be honest with you uh it hasn't changed tremendously i still walk up to those doors and, and get that knot in my stomach every time i go get one of them out. So I guess that's a good thing. Uh, you know, I think that's a common thing in talking to everyone on this podcast is that, you know, people always think like, oh, the humans are the calm one. I'm like, no, man, the dog's the calm oh, one. The man. dog, you get him out the truck and he's like, hey, I'm ready to go. And the human's like, oh, man, I could screw this up so oh, bad for exactly. him. <laughs> no, you're exactly right, David. This, uh, you know, and that does show me that I still love it, still care about it, but I do. I still get that knot in my stomach and uh, that nauseous feeling almost every time I walk up there. So it hadn't changed since the very first time. Do you just have you just learned to kind of drown it out, or just ignore yeah, it, or know, like you, have you learned to, to handle it over the years? Yeah, you, you learn to harness it, and you learn to control it, and uh, not let it uh, not let it control you. You know, in the beginning when I was first running hunt test, um, I would let my nerves get the best of me, and I'd make stupid decisions uh, very regularly when I was handling these dogs, and it it was all nerves. Um, I knew what I was knew what I should have done. And after the fact, I told I could tell you, you know, I don't know why I did that, but um, you just learn how to control them, learn to harness them, and use them to your advantage. I reckon. Yeah, that's good. That's good advice for especially those who are getting started uh, that are listening to this. So, so question for you. So originally, you said you just kind of did a little bit of training, you know, to try to help out Brad to pay for Rowan. So, mm-hmm. how and when did you decide that maybe you wanted to do this for a living? Oh, uh, <laughs> I tell everybody jokingly that Brad tricked me. 
Um, <laughs> how yeah, so? He tricked me. He, he told me I, he's going to show me how to do all this leash work and this obedience work on these dogs, and I could just help him out to pay for Owen and stuff. And I think the whole time he was just molding me and teaching me, and uh, had it and had it in the plan for to me to start training dogs all the time. So, um, you know, when I got Rowan, and after he got his master title, and I was uh, I had learned, you know, how to do the leash obedience, how to collar condition, how to force fetch. And, I was doing some work, uh, learning how to do power work and run the T with the hand signals and that kind of stuff. And the more I learned, the more I wanted to learn. And even after Rowan, uh, Rowan was a nice dog. He was a good hunt test dog, but master hunting was about his potential. I mean, um, great hunting dog and, and everything. And I was super proud of him and and don't think any less of him for not being able to compete at a higher level, but that was just his potential was master hunter. So after he reached that, um, master hunter, you know, and I wasn't really having to quote pay Brad anymore to do anything with him. I was just sucked in by, you know, what, what else can I learn to teach a dog? How else, you know, what else can this dog do? What's the next step in this process? What's the next step in this process to make these dogs better? And I just got sucked in and, just wanted to keep learning. I wanted to keep uh, working with these dogs. I, you know, huge satisfaction from watching a dog come in that doesn't know anything, uh, doesn't know his name, doesn't know anything. And then within just a few short weeks, um, the dog knows stuff. He knows the commands. He knows here and sit and heal. And uh, he knows all the things. And that just uh, that's very gratifying for me. And I just wanted to continue doing it. So we were fortunate at the time. Brad was fortunate at the time that he was his clientele was growing, and uh, he had enough dogs there for for me to continue training a few and to keep learning. So um, that's what I, did. I that's what I did. And I was still working another job, full time job, and um, in my free hours during the day and off days, I would I would train dogs and help Brad, and um, it just grew from there. Um, and then it grew to pretty significant amount of time I was spending. I took a job as a UPS supervisor, um, in the mornings and I was working from anywhere from two thirty to three thirty in the morning when I would go in and get off at 10, 10 30, 11 in the morning. And then I'd spend the rest of my day to a dark training dogs. Did that for three or four years, worked UPS from three to 10 and then dogs from 11 to whenever. And, uh, Mossy Pond was continuing to grow. And we had added another trainer um, at the time. So there was Brad, myself, and Mr. Mac Boatwright was with us at the time. And uh, we were growing and growing. And the opportunity arose, you know, from a financial standpoint that I didn't need that other job. So at that point, I resigned and made this a full-time gig. So it all happened really fast. I mean, 2007 was the first time I told a dog to sit. 2011. I resigned from UPS and went full-time dog trainer. So, Sounds I mean, also like uh, your your dad's work ethic didn't fall far from the tree, right? Well, that apple didn't fall far from the tree working yeah, and then exactly. training dogs afterwards. Yeah, he he um he owes a, he deserves a lot of credit for for that for sure. Absolutely, you can't be a dog trainer, you can't be a successful dog trainer without a great work ethic. And it's not somebody. There's nobody there pushing you, telling you you got to go do it. You've got you really got to do it yourself. Um, you've got to have that motivation, that drive, because um, it's not a nine to five job. It's not a five day a week job. So if you don't have the work ethic and the desire to to push yourself, um, 
you know, you're not going to be successful in this business. Some good advice. Um, 2011, you said, so you started kind of 2007 doing it part-time, 2011, uh, as you said, putting your resignation at the other job because you were a full-time trainer at that point. So mm -hmm. at what point did you first see or find out about the SRS? The first SRS, well, no, I've seen the SRS. I had, I had seen the SRS uh, when it was part of the outdoor games on ESPN, you know, as a youngster and I loved to watch it. I mean, absolutely loved to watch it. That was the, um, one of my favorite things to watch was that, uh, on the, you know, especially part of the outdoor games was that the dog the retriever trials. And it was absolutely amazing. Like I said, I knew nothing about dogs at that time, but it was amazing to watch those dogs do what they did, you know, and it was just, um, so I, I had seen it as a youngster on TV. And, uh, so I knew that it, I knew that it, it, it existed. Um, I knew nothing about it other than it existed. And there were people out there that could get dogs to do absolutely amazing things. And uh, when we started, and I was uh, in 2011 at that point, I had started, already started running some hunt tests, some HRC hunt tests. Brad was running an AKC hunt test. And um, we had, we picked a, we had a uh, guy working with us at the time that had run a couple SRSs. And so we all three, me, Brad, and, and, Colby, I decided to go run one up in Hinkley, Minnesota, and that was in 2011. Excuse me, that was in 2012. Uh, we all three loaded up and went to Hinkley, Minnesota, and run one. That was my first one that I had ran. Um, first one that I had seen in person um, was that one in 2012. It really, really hooked me. I mean, it hooked me hard too. I was very fortunate. I was running a, a two and a half, almost not quite three year old little female named Lexi. And uh, Lexi probably put together the best four series that she ever did her entire life, before then and after then. It was a, it was an amazing weekend for her, and uh, we come out and we won that very first one. So um, I was definitely hooked at that point. Have never seen one to go and run it and then win that one. Um, yeah, I was hooked for sure. That's awesome. So is, is Lexi the dog you credit for, for really kind of building your, your success with the SRS or, or is there other dogs along the way since then that you think kind of really establish you as somebody that the other competitors are like, Hey, hold up. Who's this guy over here? Oh, this, this new Lee Howard guy that showed up in Minnesota. This guy's a guy we got to keep an eye on. Was, was she the one or was it a little bit uh, later where people started to take notice? It was, it was a little bit later. It was, uh, yeah, yeah. A few years later in that, you know, um, I had a dog named Diesel. That was my first success. Um, Diesel was, he was an outstanding animal. He was an amazing animal. He marked well. He handled well. He worked with you. He was a great team player. Um, probably at that point in time, any, anything that went wrong in an SRS was more than likely it was my fault, not his. Um, he, um, he bailed me out of a few and, uh, I think he bailed me out more than I bailed him out, but he was a great dog. He taught me a lot of lessons, not just from the SRS standpoint, but from, you know, training and handling dogs of that caliber, um, that talent level. Uh, I learned a lot from him. Um, so, you know, he had a couple wins, several placements, and he was the one that really that got me started. You know, I would say really got me started and got me rolling in the, in the SRS and, taught me how to play the game. I mean, like I said, he was a great team player. So if I asked him to do something, most of the time he did it, whether it was the right thing to do or the wrong thing to do, he would do it for me. So I learned a lot of lessons with him and I missed him tremendously. Diesel was, he was a phenomenal dog. He is a phenomenal dog. He's still living. He's 11 years old now, 12 years old. 
and uh, he's about blind. He had developed cataracts, and uh, I had to quit running him. He ran in the 2017 Crown Championship, and uh, he didn't make he didn't make the first cut. And I'm pretty sure in the first two series that he never saw a single bird be thrown. He physically see it. And he knew it was out there, and if I sent him, he'd go look for it. But uh, he couldn't see um, real good at all with his cataracts. But he still had all the desire in the world and still had a, a big heart that you know wanted to work for me. So uh, I miss him tremendously. I can't describe or put into words everything that he taught me um, and everything that you know, I will be using for the rest of my career that, you know, because of him, I understand it and I know it. And, uh, uh, he was, he was definitely the one that kept me going in this game. Yeah. You can definitely hear it in your voice, how much he just, he meant to you and he still means to you. So what's that relationship like between dog and handler? I mean, we've kind of touched on it a little bit where you were saying, you know, you're, you're nervous at times. The dogs aren't, you know, they, <laughs> especially good dogs like diesel, they do what you tell them to. Even if you send them the wrong spot, they're trained to go where you tell them to. So yeah. What, what's that emotional connection like with your teammate? You know, I, I feel like the, uh, if you look at the successful teams, in the in the in the SRS, um, you look at your Lyle and Indy, Lyle and Jack and Coot and Steven and Dude, uh, Clark Kennington and Stroke. You look at these successful teams in the SRS, and you're going to see a really strong personal bond between the dog and the handler. I had a a dog that just retired this past year. He ran the crown this in in 2019. Uh, Mamba, um, Mamba and I had a real close bond i mean we were you know we were tight you know i spent a lot of time with mamba um, outside of just sending him to go pick something up um so that bond is is important and i and i truly feel that to be successful in this game um that bond's got to be pretty strong you as a handler and the dog as the athlete have to know you're not just out there picking up things for an individual that you're doing it for each other. That dog has got to know that you're working for him. And of course you've got to know that he's working for you. So that bond is, that bond's important. And, um, I think it, it's pretty evident in the past and success that people have had. Uh, if you look at the, the dog and handler teams that have had the most success, I think you're going to see super strong personal bonds you know, outside of the work environment, just true personal bonds. Does your background as an athlete, I mean, you told us when you were a kid, you played everything with a ball and bat, right? You're playing baseball, you're playing football, you're playing basketball. So anything with a ball you were playing, mm -hmm. does your own experience as an athlete help you as a handler with these dog athletes, you know, in any way, shape or form? It does. Um, the, you know, the big thing that I think it helps you with is reaction and adjusting to situations, how you react in a, in, when something comes up, you know, we all walk up there with a plan. Um, now, the majority of the time, that plan we have in our mind when we, when we send that dog for the first mark gets thrown out the window. So your your reaction time and your the way you adjust um, has a huge impact on our on your success and our performances. So, as an athlete, you know that's what, especially on a baseball field, you know you're on that baseball field and and you don't know where the ball is going. You're just waiting to react. You don't know what pitch is coming. You don't know if it's going to be a fastball inside or a change up blowing away. 
You're just reacting. You're reacting and you're adjusting. And so that adjustment time and that reaction time and that handling changes um, as an athlete plays a huge role in, in how we handle these dogs. Um, and it also gives us, uh, as an athlete growing up, I knew what my limitations were. I knew what I could and couldn't do. And that's the same with these dogs. Uh, these dogs are, without question, true athletes. But every true athlete has their limitations. They have what they can do and what they can't do. And as a handler, and knowing that dog, and knowing him as an athlete, I know what his weakness is, or I know what his limitations are. So growing up in a competitive nature, a competitive sport, yeah, it definitely, it definitely helps. It's like heavyweight champion Mike Tyson said once, everybody's got a plan until you're punched in the face, you're right? And the then you got to figure it out from <laughs> and there. Then you figure it out from there, and that's exactly right. And that's, you know, growing up, like I said, growing up in sports, you um, you learn to roll with the punches. You learn to play the hand that you're dealt and do the best you can do. And um, so as a handler, that's that's what we do every time we walk to the line. Yeah. Of the dogs you're training right now, is there one we should be watching to compete for crown championships or is there an upcoming star, maybe a, a younger dog that you're training that would be competing, you know, a few years from now that we should keep our eyes on? Golly, you know, that's a tough question. And I was, I've been thinking about that the last few days. It's hard for me to pick one, to be honest. I mean, and I'm glad I can say that. Um, I have a fairly young team as it is. You know, the, my teammates right now, um, they're all five years and younger, um, except with the exception of two dogs. Um, I have two dogs that are over five years old that I'm, you know, that are my teammates right this minute. And so those, those other five or six dogs that I have that are all five and under, you know, they're all pretty special. I do have, I do have one that, you know, right now, right today, um, little dog named Smooth. Smooth is, uh, he's a four year old. He just placed, uh, he just placed third at, at Natchez a few weeks ago. Super cool dog. He's got a great personality outside of work. He'll hang out with you all day long. He'll go 400 yards if you ask him to. He'll swing with that gun. Um, he's a great little dog, and right now he's he's hitting on he's hitting on all cylinders right now in training and and kind of sticking out. And uh, you know the cool thing about Smooth is you know, Smooth picked up over a thousand birds this past duck season. Wow. Um, he and his owner, I mean, he hunts every day of the of the season. So he's, you know, that's the type of dog he is, though. Whether he's hunting or whether he's standing on the line next to me looking out at a, at a white coat out there, 350, across the pond, he's always, he's willing to do it. And um, he loves doing it, enjoys doing it. And then when you get done running that 400-yard 400, 400 mark, you can go to the truck and sit down on the chair and he'll curl up next to you or even try to get in your lap with you. Um, so right now, I would say Smooth is, is probably... One that very closely keep an eye on um, in my book. You know, I still have, <laughs> I'm talking about him and I'm thinking about Shooter. Um, Shooter's qualified for the 2020 Crown Championship um, and he's running really good right now. He had a couple of hiccups and natches that, that put him out of the running, um, but he's performing at a tip top level right now too. And he's a five year old, just turned five years old. Um, so I, I have. I have three or four that I think um, are going to be contenders and really, really uh, be hard to beat in this game for the next few years, next several years. And um, I'm uh, I'm looking forward to seeing them myself. But right now, Smooth and, and Shooter, those are the ones that the current teammates that I have that I think are 
they're going to be there for me and they're going to, they're going to be uh hard to beat. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. And I'm glad you, you told us a little bit about smooth's personality. It kind of nat- naturally flows into our next question. So we've been putting, uh, and this is shameless plug here. So everybody listening to this podcast, when we pick a guest for the next episode, <laughs> we're putting it on Facebook and we're saying, Hey, if you have any questions for Lee Howard or whoever the guest is, let us know. So one of our listeners, Trent Sproul said, can you tell us any stories about the dog's personalities or any quirks they may have? So you've already told us a little bit about Smooth. You want to tell us about Shooter or maybe even some of your dogs that you already mentioned from the past, like Lexi or Diesel or Mom, but just anything about their personalities or their quirks? Uh, one of the Diesel was a super quirky. And as much as I loved him, the worst thing in the world about Diesel was sitting in a holding line waiting your turn to go. When you sat in, when you got in the holding line, you you put him in that home line and you're waiting for your turn to go. If you didn't put your hand on him and pet his head, I mean, just, just place your hand on his, on his head. His tail would be wagging so hard. It'd be beating the side of the home line and stirring up dust, or he would be trying to jump on you. You had to be touching him. And you didn't have to be petting him. Just put your hand on his head and he'd sit there. His tail wouldn't move. He wasn't panting. He wasn't moving. He would just sit right there just as calm as you could be. But the second you pulled your hand off of that, off of his head, his tail went a hundred miles an hour. He was pawing at you, jumping on. I mean, he was just for those three to four minutes that I had to wait and hold my lines with him at an event. I despised him because he was aggravating as he could be. <laughs> but, but I say that because I, I do. I love that dog a ton. But that that was one of his quirks. You had to be touching him. Just you had. He just. That's all he wanted you to do was just just touch him. Just put your hand on his head and touch him, and he would be just as calm and mellow as you want him to be. But otherwise, he would drive you nuts trying to get your attention. That's awesome, man. <laughs> so, so question for you. What do you see as the future for the SRS? Um, I think, and I hope I'm right, I think the SRS um, is going to continue to grow. Now, I've seen growth in the last couple of years, um, especially on the amateur side of things. I think implementing the title and making it a notable, readable, printable title through the UKC has made a significant impact, especially for the amateur. And I've seen I've seen uh, the pro side of things grow also. I've seen more you know a few new pros running it over the last couple or three years that are, um, you know, have run one or two and then continuing to run some. Um, so I see it growing, and I think we'll consent continue to see it grow i think it says a lot for like i said i see it in the amateur side of things i've seen it i think more substantial growth um on that side but you know it says a lot for our amateurs and the quality of dog work that they are um that they're doing now um the caliber of dogs that they are handling themselves and training themselves getting better and better and making them more capable of running the super retriever series so i've i've seen it grow I think we will continue to see it grow um, and become, I think, even more popular than it ever has been. It's more accessible now than it has been in the past. There's more events. Uh, they're more spread across the country, so people can run it. I'm excited about it. Um, Clark and I were joking earlier about, you know, the larger the, the larger the number of the SRS, the bigger the check is we take home. Um, exactly. So, I mean, you know, as a competitor, when I go to one, I'm going to win. And I think I can. I think every one of my go to, I think I can win it. 
It don't matter if there's 25 dogs there, there's a hundred dogs there. I'm going to win it. And, uh, from us on the pro side of things and even on the amateur side of things, the more the merrier, you know, the more dogs I beat, the, the bigger the check is that I take home and, uh, the bigger bragging rights that I get. So I hope it continues to grow. Absolutely agree with you. I agree with that sentiment that I think it's going to continue to grow. And I think there's going to see more and more events and more competitors at each event. And I, I think I speak for all your competitors and all the fans out there that everybody thinks you'll be a force to be reckoned with for many years to come and will continue to be someone that everybody knows that they're going to have to beat if they want to win. As Ric Flair said, to be the man, you got to beat the man, right? So, Man, you're exactly right, and I hope so. And I think, I mean, not to – we've got a lot going on at Mossy Pond, and um, the teammates that I work with, the, the, the human teammates that I work with here at Mossy Pond are uh, – I mean, we're as good as we've ever been. I think we're getting better. Clark Kennington working with us now. Clark and I getting to work side by side every day with what he's done in the sport. I think we're I think we're going to continue to grow and continue to get better. And uh, I do hope that when I pull up to an event that uh, the competition says, "Man, Lee's here," or "Man, Mossy Pond's here." I hope that's how it goes. I sure I truly do. Well, man, best of luck to you. Before we let you go, if you've been listening to the podcast, you know we always wrap them up with some rapid fire questions at the end. So. Give you quick questions, quick answers, then uh, then we'll let you go. So uh, what's something about Lee Howard that most people don't know? I have horrible, horrible nerves. I said that earlier. Yeah, I never knew that, and I've interviewed interviewed you dozens of times. So that is that is interesting to, to, to hear and to know that you yeah. have found a way to, to overcome those. When I say retriever trials, who's the first dog that comes to mind and why? It could be one of your dogs, or it could be one that someone else has trained. Diesel. Um... He was what got me going. He was my first success. Um, one of the best dogs I've ever stood beside. If Diesel was a human athlete, what sport would he play and why? Oh, he would have been a uh, he had been a multiple athlete, multiple sport athlete. He would have been a Bo Jackson, a baseball player and a football player. Super strong, super fast, and uh, just an all-around great athlete. Awesome. If you had to describe yourself in one word, what would it be? supposed to be a fast answer isn't it describe myself in one word grateful that's a good one it's a real good one what profession other than your own would you have liked to have attempted Mm. professional baseball player starting to field a baseball team here mike gibson's answer was the same so i'm starting to get the srs baseball team over here (laughs) if we ever want to have a enter in a a softball (laughs) league i think i know some guys i'm gonna sign up on the team with me (laughs) Oh, hey, I'm not going to promise you how good I'll be, but I promise I'll have fun. Well, we are grateful that you uh, chose uh, dog handling and training as your profession. And and Lee Howard, best of luck to you moving forward. Uh, You're always one of my favorites to talk to at the events. And I've had a blast here today and hope that you have as well. And hope that everybody at home that's listened to this podcast also enjoyed it. Thank you very much for your time. I appreciate it. Thank you all so much for uh, having me on as a guest. And uh, I look forward to listening to... uh, continue success of these podcasts awesome man i'll see you soon at an event take care yes sir you too i'm will cooper and you're listening to hunt stands make your mark podcast on the waypoint podcast network stick around as i bring you more stories and interviews from veteran hunters and industry professionals who inspire us all to be better equipped in the woods and in life Join Captain Justin Leake and Meredith McCord for the best fishing action along Panama City Beach. Tune in to Chasing the Sun every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV.